How are you guys doing? Thank you. Went to Texas. Bought some property. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. It was hot and humid. Man, you could. So Myron, he's my seven-year-old. He's like, Dad, the air here is thick. <laughs> yep, it's called humidity. I was really, really happy to be home. That's how you know where you belong. I'm just happy to be home. I know there's problems with Oregon. I get that. But it's my home, and I'm glad to be home. Jesus. Jesus, thanks for the gathering of the saints. Thanks for the opportunity to break bread together, to meet someone new, to rekindle friendships, to have great conversations. Thanks for the opportunity to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to you. Thanks for this book that you've given to us. God breathed. We pray that today, Lord, you would breathe through this book into these jars of clay and you'd bring to life the things that you have promised to us. So speak. May we be obedient servants. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, um, growing up, I can remember one book besides the Bible that my mom had. It was in the kitchen. It was the only cooking book that she had. No, it's called The Joy of Cooking. And I remember as a kid, I thought, what? There is no joy in cooking. That thing should be filed in the fiction section, right? So no joy in cooking. So I get married. Um, praise God, my wife is a great cook. But one time I decided to cook breakfast for her, and I cooked my college favorite, which was leftover spaghetti noodles with scrambled eggs. She said, I'll cook from now on. <laughs> I did not impress her, right? And I didn't really care because I'm like, there's no joy in cooking. Since then, though, maybe the last five, eight years, I've discovered there actually is joy in cooking. To get really good ingredients and to prepare something and to do, there's joy in cooking, right? I discovered joy in a place that I never thought I would. Now, there may not be joy in eating what I cook, but man, I enjoy it. Right? You can find joy and often different spots, unexpected. We think joy comes from money or vacations or really bad beer commercial with guys sitting around a campfire saying it doesn't get better than this, right? There's all these kind of things that say, no, this is how you get joy, but I don't think that's true. So here's the good news. God gave us a book that's all about joy. It's called Philippians, and we're going to be jumping in it. I've titled this book in my own thinking, Thanks for the Joy. 
because it's actually a thank you letter from Paul to some people. So it's thanks for the joy. And this entire epistle is ripe with joy, which is amazing to me because it was written by Paul, a man who probably suffered more than any other man in the New Testament other than Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 11, just a detailing, 2 Corinthians 11, just a detailing of what he went through. It's unbelievable. And this is the man that says, there's joy. And then even better than that, the place, the place that he finds joy. It's not Maui. It's not Texas. It's not Idaho. It's not Paris. Not New York. It's a prison where he is waiting to be brought before Caesar Nero where eventually he'll be taken out on the Appian Way and have his head cut off. That's what he's waiting for. And it's in the midst of those circumstances that he says, there's joy. There's joy. So this book is a response to some people that had said, Paul's in prison, let's send him some money. Now, why would you need money in prison? Could be prison was like this. I was a missionary in Vanuatu for a year. And in Vanuatu, we'd go every Friday down to the prison, and we would share the good news with the prisoners there. The first time I went, we're walking up to this prison. It's this dilapidated building with a five-foot fence around it. And there's this guy outside the fence, and he's outside cutting, and he's a prisoner. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? He's like, I'm out gardening. I'm like, oh, okay. Why don't you just escape? He said, where would I go? It's an island. I said, that's true. Okay. I said, why are you out here gardening? And he goes, well, I got to grow food. Here's the deal. In Vanuatu, they don't feed you in prison. You have to figure out how to feed yourself. If you can't figure out how to feed yourself, your sentence is changed to a death sentence. So you're outside gardening. I wonder if Paul was in that same kind of a position, that in order to eat, you had to have people that were willing to either bring you food or send you money. So Paul, in response to this generous gift that people had given to him in prison, he writes Philippians, which is a thank you note. Thank you for the joy. So last week, we finished Judges. Brutal book. Judges is what happens to a land when there is no king. And it's chaos and destruction and disaster. Philippians is, this is what happens to a people when they understand the King Jesus gospel, how it transforms them. It's a brilliant, brilliant epistle. So let's jump in. Verse one, Philippians chapter one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First, King Jesus' gospel transformation is this. It's gospel friendships. That's what Paul's talking about here. I have these gospel friendships with you guys. Yeah, you love them, don't you? <laughs> you get your candy when service is over. Thank you. How do you build friendships that last? Paul's been through a lot, and yet he's maintained the friendship he has with these people in Philippi. Let me give you some things that he says in here that I think help you and me build lasting gospel friendships. Number one, he's thankful. He says, verse three, I thank my God in all. I have that word all in my Bible circled. All my remembrance of you. Is there anyone in your life that every memory you have of them, you're thankful for? Every single thing, like they've never got on your nerves, they've never chewed with their mouth open, they've never left their Christmas lights up till July, they've never parked their RV in front of your house, they've never hurt you, they've never been bad to you. Is there anyone like that? Paul says it for an entire church. Look around this part of the church right now. Is, everyone, are, are, is every person in here, are you thankful for every memory you have of them? The time they just cut you off and got in line before you getting dinner. The lemon they sold you at the car lot, right? Like, this is amazing. If it's true, if you're saying, man, every memory I have of somebody, then it must be you don't know them very well. Because the more you get to know people, the more they bother you, and the more they, you see they're not perfect, and the more you realize they're not like you, and that really bothers you, right? So most of us go through this cycle with people. We admire them, we idolize them, something makes us mad, so we criticize them, and then we ostracize them. So how does Paul say to an entire church, every single memory I have of you guys, I'm thankful for? He chose it. He chose to remember the things that he was thankful for. It's a choice. I learned this very early in life. I was a junior at OSU. So not very early in life, junior at OSU. I had moved into this house with six other guys. I had replaced this guy named Dwayne who was from Portland, just a very hip kind of, we'd call him a metrosexual today, just a very handsome, like, dev dapper kind of guy. And I'd replaced him. And it was within the first month, we're in our little living room, and it's Brad Welker, Paul Londigan, and myself. 
And Brad Welker said to Paul, hey, remember how Dwayne, the roommate I had replaced from Portland, remember how Dwayne called you a hick redneck from Bandon? Now, if you know relationships, you know conversations that young men have, guess what that was right there? Here's an opportunity to bash on this guy that's not here, right? Like, let's rip into him. And so we're sitting back, I'm just waiting for the the ripping to begin, right? Dwayne's gonna get ripped up here. This is what's gonna happen. Now, we're Christians, so when we're done, maybe we'll pray for him. This is what Paul said. He looked at Brad and said, I've chose not to remember Dwayne that way. Now, I was kind of disappointed because this is before reality TV. So you had to invent your own. So I'm like, dang, well, there went that. But here's what I learned. Paul is a man that has chosen to remember people and be thankful for only the good stuff and forget the garbage. And he and I became best of friends. That's a man I can trust. It's a choice. Paul has made a choice. My friendships, I'm, I'm not gonna let the bad stuff pollute the good and I'm gonna be thankful and remember what's good. What do you choose to remember about people? The stuff you can be thankful for? or just the stuff that poisons the way that you view them. Paul chose to remember things to be thankful for. Number one, you want gospel? Lasting relationship? Remember the thankful stuff. Number two, pray. Verse four, he goes, I'm praying with joy. I love that. He trained his brain to pray with joy. We'll get to it in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. He says, train your brain to think this way. Remember that thegessal self? If it's true, if it's honorable, if it's just, if it's excellent, if it's praiseworthy, think on these things. This is what Paul had done with his prayer life. He had prayed joy over and over and over, trained his brain. If you change your mind, because you can be saying, well, there are these really bad memories I have about them or have about her, and I can't seem to get over them. Here's what you do. You change your mind and God will change your heart. God, I don't want to think that way about them anymore. I don't want to play that tape over and over and over and over again. I don't want that bitterness to settle into my soul. So I'm changing my mind. And Psalm 5110 says this, he can create a clean heart in you. You say, okay, God, I don't want to think this. I'm praying joy. Change me so that I remember the good stuff. Pray blessing on that person. Play God's favor on that person. And watch and see how God changes your heart towards them. Pray joy. Number three, partner in the gospel, verse five. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, you want really good relationships with people? Go on a missions trip with them. Participate in some kind of service with them. Joe's Place, Gospel Rescue Mission, Pregnancy Care Center, I don't care where it is, but get involved in ministry with them. Share a mission because something happens. If you've ever been on the mission field with somebody for a short-term mission or long-term mission, Dominic Dunn, who was here two weeks ago, we lived in a grass hut together for nine months. Man, we just became best of friends. Why? Because we had this shared mission in that time. Go serve somehow. That's what Paul's saying. I deepened my relationship with you. Why? Because we shared, partnered in the gospel together. Number four, Be emotional. Look at verses seven and eight. It's right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart 
For you all are partakers of my grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Emotional. That word yearn there is literally bowels. Science has found that inside of your gut is what they call the second brain. Do you know that? The largest concentration of neurons outside of your brain is right here in your gut. That's why when something is really emotional or you've really been hurt or you're really crushed, where do you hurt? Not in your head, right? Where do you hurt? In your bowels. It's that second brain triggering. So Paul is saying, man, I have this just affection for you. It's deep. I have emotional vulnerability toward you. We're supposed to be emotional people. Do you know that? Especially, I'm going to talk to husbands here. Husbands, you're supposed to be emotional with your wife. I know there's some guy in here that's going to be like, well, Matt, I'm just not a very emotional man. I tend to be much more analytical. You know what I say to people like that? You're a liar. And then they go, what? You can't call me a liar. Wait, I thought you weren't emotional. You just got emotional when I called you a liar right? Really? You're not emotional? So you're telling me when you're playing golf and you shank that ball, you're like, hmm, it would appear I did not hit that ball straight. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Or when your team is getting beat down, they're just getting trashed. You're like, well, that looks like they have more points than I do. Hmm. Right? Or when you go to your job and you find all your stuff out on the sidewalk, you're like, well, thank you for the tenure at this place. I appreciate the last year. No way. No way. When we're not emotional for our relationships and we are for golf or for our job or for the big game, what that says to our spouse especially is you're not as important as golf or the big game or my job. Be very careful. Good relationships have emotion in them. So I went on the mission field with this guy once. He's a doorkeeper here for a long time. And we've been all over the place. And I came in and usually I I fist bump people, you know? Like I did this before COVID because fingers do all kinds of things like pick noses and stuff. So the fist bump's just better. So I'd fist bump people. And I came in one time and he was waiting at a door and I just gave him a hug. And this is what he said to me. He goes, and I've known him for 10 years at that point. He said, wow. Now I know you really like me. And I'm like, bro, are you kidding? But it means something. Relationships are supposed to be emotional, right? Number five, verse nine, he prays for them. Real simple, pray for your friends. Don't need to say more than that? Just write a list of them in the morning when you're driving to work, when you're driving somewhere, pray for your friends. Gospel Relationships, pray for your friends. Then, number six, and this is my favorite. So that you may approve what is excellent. Approve what is excellent in your friends. There are always two ways to view everything. Do you know that? We can choose to be those that are walk on eggshell kind of people that people are always afraid of offending us because we want to take everything the wrong way. Or you can say, whatever that person does, I'm going to try to see the way that they're saying it 
in an excellent way. I'm gonna approve what is excellent. I practiced this. So I had this neighbor, and we, I had invited her to church. And she goes, what, what church is it? And I said, well, it's Edgewater. She goes, oh, I've heard about that church. And it was when we were over at Fruitdale. She goes, I've heard that place is like a zoo. Parking's crazy, people are crazy. I just don't know if I could go there. Now there's a couple ways I could take that, right? This is what I did. I said, oh yeah, man, it is a zoo. We have a great time there. We have a party there. It is a blast. If you don't want a church like that, I can make other recommendations for you. And she just cracked up and she started coming to church. Now, if I would've got all offended, it would've been bad. Man, it's choosing to approve what is excellent. Jeremiah has told this, it's Jeremiah 15, verse 19. He's told this by God. He said, if you want to be my mouthpiece, you need to learn to extract the precious from the vile. You've gotta figure out how to approve what is excellent. Well, how do you extract the precious from the vile, right? That seems hard. So if somebody's doing something vile, if they're drunk all the time, what are you supposed to say? Man, you are an amazing drinker. How do you do that? I would pass out if I had that much alcohol. (laughs) I don't think so. You want the best example in the world? It's John chapter four. Jesus meets a woman at the well, an outcast woman. He begins to talk to her. She says these questions to Jesus. Why are you here? Why are you asking me to get a drink for you? You don't do that. We're the wrong kind of people. And so Jesus says, call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that you have not a husband because you've had five husbands and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. You're trading sex for rent right now. In that, you've answered right. What a brilliant answer. And then Jesus just graciously, graciously draws her into the kingdom. And that's how we're supposed to be. It's, it's like this. We're supposed to treat God's children. Do, do you like it when, when people treat your kids really kindly? Don't you love that? God's the same way. Treat my kids kindly. Let your, seeds, let your speech be always seasoned with grace, approving the things that are excellent. This is how you develop, develop gospel-centered friendships. And Paul, years down the road from Philippi, still has these great relationships with them because he's thankful, because he's praying for them, because he's approving things that are excellent in them. He's doing those things. It's amazing. So that's the first thing. Next thing is gospel power. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Number two, gospel power. You know Paul's story, Acts 21 through 28. Arrested, trial after trial after trial after trial, finally sent to Rome. Gets to Rome, and in Rome, he's under lock and guard. Now, most people would say, that is a bummer. 
What's Paul saying? It's awesome, right? Don't cry for me. Why? You guys don't know about my judo theology, right? No? I'll repeat it. So, judo is a kind of martial art where you try to use the momentum of your enemy against himself, right? So let's say this. Sunday, I've preached three times in a row. Doug, who is our wonderful sound man, who's the kindest, nicest man in the world, he's finally fed up with it. I can't hear that joke again. He just jumps over the barrier there, comes running towards me, and he's gonna take me out. And so I have taken an online judo course and know exactly what to do. So I use his momentum and I throw him to the ground and an ambulance comes and takes him away. Okay? That's judo. Judo uses the momentum of your opponent against himself. That's what God does all the time. What the enemy means for evil, God turns for good. So the enemy meant this for evil. I'm going to imprison Paul. I'm going to take him out. What does Paul say? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? I'm now in a cell, and I am chained to the praetorian guard. And it was either four men at a time on six-hour shifts, or it was one man at a time on a six-hour shift. So he was either sharing the gospel to a very captive guy for six hours straight, four times a day, or four people straight, six times a day. Like, that's amazing, right? Like, unbelievable. They can't get away from him. So he keeps sharing and sharing and sharing. And he goes, it's been spread throughout the whole imperial guard. And the imperial guard was this. If you wanted to make your way up in the Senate, you would get your son into the imperial guard. It was a stepping stone to power. So Paul now is chained to the future leaders of Rome, and he's sharing the gospel with them. And in chapter 4, verse 22, he says this, a whole bunch of them believe in Jesus now. How awesome is that, right? That God snuck Paul in somewhere where he would have incredible power to shape the leaders of Rome in the coming decades. How amazing is that? And you just have to trust God. We think, oh no, what happened? God's like, are you kidding? Watch what I do with this. Very early on at Edgewater, we had this gal who came, uh, got kicked out of her house, did not have a, had kids, no house, nothing, just destitute, right? So Glenn Litwiller, if you don't know him, he was pastor, still is a pastor here, had a stroke, things have changed for him. But it was when Glenn Litwiller was just tenacious. It was when he was who just God had designed him to be. And he grabbed this gal, got her into a house, got her a car, helped her for just like about six months, just absolutely helped her, got her a job, everything you can imagine, set her up, and then she disappeared from church. And so we all felt like, man, we feel like we've been used a little bit, right? Like, ah, okay, that's a bummer. Well, here's what happens. She ends up, as can happen, goes downhill, doesn't pay her rent, gets the car repoed, and ends up in trouble with the law. So she's brought before a judge. The judge is trying to figure out, like, what's your story? How'd you get this house? She goes, well, Edgewater got me the house. How'd you get that car? Well, Edgewater got me that car. How'd you get that job? Well, Edgewater got me that job. And he's like, wow. Goes back into his chamber, calls us up. Says, I've been talking to this gal, and she's telling me that you guys have helped her do all these things. He said, I have a son who's on drugs right now. Can you help my son? How amazing is that, right? God snuck us in to a place that normally pastors don't go. 
Hopefully they're not in court, right? It's not a good thing for a pastor to be in court because God knew something. Now we just gotta trust God's power. This is, this is what Paul does. The gospel just has power. Don't trust it. Trust that God is on the throne and what's happening right now, if you have the right perspective, can be turned into something incredible and powerful, right? The, the most lasting legacy of Paul is not the churches he planted, they're all gone, but it's the epistles he penned. The majority of them were penned in prison. Now, Paul would have never thought that. He would have thought, man, the greatest work I'm doing now is planting these churches. Oh, no, Paul. I'm gonna put you in prison so you're not able to go visit those places. Instead, you've gotta pull out your pen and author the New Testament. We just never know. We just never know. Judo theology, trust him. He's the only one that's able to take the momentum of the evil one and turn it for good. Incredible. But one more thought on this. Imagine you are chained 24-7 to someone. They see how you sleep. They see how you eat. They see how you wake up in the morning. Are you grumpy? Are you, good morning, Lord, or good Lord, it's morning? Which one are you, right? How do you treat people? How do you treat them? 24-7 for two years. Would they believe in Jesus after being chained to you for two years? They do here with Paul. What a testimony, right? He walks his talk, and it's written in the people's lives that were changed by his life, his lifestyle. Brilliant, right? So gospel power. Now gospel preaching, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Gospel preaching. Some people, because Paul had been put in prison, and they're like, that's the worst that can happen? They became bold in sharing Jesus. But there was another group of people that thought, if we can stir up trouble by the gospel and read the book of Acts, the gospel stirred up trouble. If we can stir up trouble with the gospel, then what will happen is Caesar will see the trouble the gospel is doing and he'll cut Paul's head off to try and stop it. So they were actually trying to get Paul killed by preaching the gospel and stirring up trouble. So what does Paul say about it? Yes, go right ahead. Now, why would he say that? Here's why. It's Romans 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, singular, is the power of God unto salvation. One of the most important Bible verses. What's the power of God unto salvation? The gospel, period. I think sometimes we try to get too cute with the gospel. We try to have rhyming points or we try to like over explain things or try to get cute 
No. Share the gospel because it, singular, is the power God uses to save people. And so Paul says, I don't care how they're saying it. It has power. The gospel in itself has power, that God is good and generous, and he gave himself for us to free us from sin and death, and he's preparing a new place for us that you and I might spend eternity with him. That's the good news, that by the cross, by the sacrifice of God himself, we are cleansed and brought into the kingdom. That's what we preach. That has power. Don't get cute. Just share the gospel. It has power. Gospel preaching. Gospel perspective, verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Gospel perspective. Paul says... Please pray. Pray that I will not be ashamed. That I will live a life during this next season that has no shame. Ever been worried that you might bring shame to your name? I was many years ago. I was in Zambia, Africa. We were over there trying to see if we should start this mission for babies that were being abandoned that had AIDS. So if a baby had AIDS, it would just be left. So there's this hospital called for hearts and souls that would take them in. So we're trying to figure out how do we partner with them? Brilliant, brilliant ministry, just unbelievable. So I'm there with this family that's thinking about going over there and being part of the work and I'm kind of checking it out. Um, And the end of the trip, we went down to Victoria Falls And while we're there, just epic, just unbelievable, like one of the most majestic places on earth, there was this big bridge that actually went from Zambia to Zimbabwe. And in the middle of it was a bungee jump. Went 333 feet. At that time, it was the highest in the world. It's no longer the highest in the world. And so I'm like, wow, I should do that. So I asked, how much is it? Well, for 40 bucks, you get two jumps and a video of you jumping. I'm like, okay, done, right? So they weigh you in, you got to wait, and then you walk out there. And I'm walking out there, and then I begin to realize, like, I'm in Africa. There's no OSHA here. There's no safety here. I could die. Hmm. So I'm walking, and I get out there, and there's this other guy who walks up, and he was like 6'4", 240, and he was a Dane. 
And I'm like, hey, bro, you want to go first? He's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, good, because he weighs 240. I don't weigh 240. If it holds for him, it will hold for me. So it was very actually evil of me to have him go first. So we're there, and there was one person in front of us, and we're standing there, and what you're supposed to do is they count five, four, three, two, one, bungee. And they have this sign that says, we have a 99% success rate. 99% of the people jump, right? So this person's there, and they're like, do the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, bungee. No movement. They're like, okay, okay, no problem, right? And they do it again. Five, four, three, two, one, bungee. No movement. And you are standing on a two by four with your legs tied together, looking down 335 feet, and there are crocodiles in the river down below. Yeah, so it's high. Your adrenaline's high, so no shame to this person. So there they are. So they're like, okay, okay, no, no, no problem. So they do it a third time. Nope. Fourth time, five, four, three, two, one, bungee. Nope. This hand just comes out and goes, bump, pushes her. And down she tumbles. Like, you get pushed, you don't go down the right way. They're keeping their 99% success rate. So I get out there, and your whole, I mean, you, it is, it is terrifying. And I think I'm a pretty brave guy. And I'm out there, I'm like, oh my goodness. You're looking down 335 feet and you see like crocodiles just kind of doing this below. You're like, I hope they do everything right right now. You could die here. But the last thing I wanted was to get a video of someone pushing me off. Like, ah, don't know, right? So they started counting down. They hit three and I just jumped. I'm like, I'm not waiting. You will not push me. No one wants to live with shame, right? So Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me that I don't don't bring shame. Now, what was his key? Verse 21 should be underlined in every single Bible. It says this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the perspective that keeps you from shame. He's saying, I can't lose here. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. For me to live is Christ. Can you change Christ to any other word? For me to live is motocross. Well, eventually, your motorcycle will be sold at a garage sale, right? For me to live is my reputation, success, all right? Who can remember who won the Oscar 10 years ago? Nobody, right? It's fleeting, For me to live is money. If I just had money, that would be it. Really? You're going to die? You're going to take it with you? There's no other word that you can change that for. For me to live is to to be cool. Eventually, you will get old, and you will go into a grocery store, and you will have to buy Depends. Buying Depends is not cool, and that's coming for all of us at some point, right? Coolness will go away. For me to live is to be a moral good person. Good luck with that. I have a study. I cut it out some 10 years ago. And they said, do you know the number one most moral state in America? Guess what it is? Any guesses? Utah. You got it. Utah is, when you did, they did a moral kind of thing, Utah is the most moral state in America. 
You know, the state with the highest percentage of online porn subscribers? Utah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So you can look good on the outside. What did Jesus call them? Whitewashed sepulchers. Look out. So you're more, oh, really? Really, you're gonna be oral? Sure you are. You're just good at hiding. That's all you are. You're good at hiding. Good at, good at statistics. There's no word you can replace this with. For me, live as Christ. That's the only thing that can bear the greatness of what you and I are destined for. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For the believer, you know what? You can't lose. Proverbs 4.18 says this, the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until that day. That's what we have here. This is his perspective. It doesn't matter what they do to me, right? It reminds me of a story um, from the 1970s in Romania. Romania was in the middle of a, just a absolute explosion of the gospel. People were getting saved. It was still behind the Iron Curtain, if you know your history, USSR, communism. So they didn't like that. So they brought down, the, they brought down their, you know, the USSR's people, whoever they are, and the KGB, that's who I'm looking for. And they came in there, they rounded up all the pastors they could, they brought them together and said, no more preaching, no more Jesus, no more church, or we will kill you. And this pastor stood up in the back and he said, kill me. Do you threaten me with glory? Mic drop. Go ahead, because to die is gain. When you have that perspective, you're unstoppable. Unstoppable. That's why Revelation 12, 10 says this. They overcame the evil one by the word of their testimony, the blood of the lamb, and that they love not their lives even unto death. They're untouchable then. Go ahead. Threaten me with glory. That's the gospel perspective that Paul has, and it's, I can't lose. I can't lose. Do you have that? Maybe it might not be death, but it might be someone's opinion of you, or maybe a job promotion. Guess what? You can't lose. You can't lose. You're a Christian. You can't lose. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then lastly, gospel life. Finish quickly here. Only, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is, is a clear sign of them, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have a gospel life. Chapter two is the chapter on gospel life. Gives examples, it's brilliant. But let me just pick out a couple things real quick here about what a gospel life looks like, a life that's lived worthy of the gospel. Number one is this. This is your goal. Verse 27 says, 
that you're in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Gospel life, number one, has unity with other believers. You're unified. The further you get away from the gospel, the more easy it is to divide from other believers. Do you know that? You start dividing about like worship style or start dividing about should we have rugs in here or concrete in here or Calvinism versus Arminianism or cessationism versus charismaticness uh, through the Bible teaching versus topical teaching. By the way, Acts is a lot of topical teaching. We're doing through the Bible right now. They're both in there, right? The further you get from the gospel, the more you start dividing about things that don't matter. This is the view we're supposed to have. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 says this, that we're married to Christ. Now, as a guy, okay, a little awkward. But here's what it means to me. It means this. We're all married to Christ, all of us. We're like in a marriage, right? In a marriage, for a marriage to work, you have to decide the, the very important things that matter and what really doesn't. And you get rid of a lot of stuff that doesn't. Okay, so here was a big one for me. When I first got married to Charity, I realized within the first couple of days that we had very different theologies on how to use toothpaste, okay? So in my house, it was strict. You pressed from the bottom of that tube, you put the cap back on. We had this little device that you would slide up and clamp on it, right? It was perfect. You did not crumple it. It looked brand new, just flat when you were done, right? That was a strict Theology on toothpaste. My wife, very different. It looked like a dog attacked a banana, right? When she was done. You're just like, what is that, right? So as a newlywed husband, I sat her down and explained to her proper toothpaste theology. Giant mistake, right? She's so sweet. She's like, okay, honey, sweet, okay. So for about four days, she maintained the theology and then it dropped off. So what did I do? That's it, we're divorced. I can't do this anymore. No. I quickly realized what is most important here is not how she squeezes the toothpaste tube. What is most important is that she uses toothpaste, (laughs) right? That if her teeth look like a piano, there's a big problem. So let's get down to what really matters. She's brushing her teeth. And so now I've changed my theology. I squeeze it like a dog chewing a banana. I'm like, that's fine, right? We're supposed to do that. The closer you get to the gospel, the more you realize what actually matters. So I was on the mission field in Vanuatu, and we had there the AOG, Assemblies of God, Ray Spari, great guy, hyper charismatic. We had Philip Pinero, New Tribes, man, straight down the line, Baptist theology, just cessationist, nothing, right? And then you had us, the Applegate crew, that was like the mutant, like, oh, we're kind of like, like both of you guys and it's all okay, okay with us, right? So we go and do mission stuff together. What was amazing was this. When we started sharing the gospel with people that did not know Jesus, all of our differences disappeared because we had one thing. Let's share the gospel. Let's introduce these people to Jesus, that that's what, is, what matters the most right now. Like, the closer you get to the gospel, the more you're like, ah, let's stop arguing, right? Like, the Bible says that everyone will know you are my disciples by your right doctrine. No. 
by your love, by your love one for another. It's stop arguing about how to get the stuff out of the tube and just get it out of the tube. Get the gospel out of the tube. Unity, unity. Gospel life has unity with the believers. Number two, gospel life has no fear. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. No fear. Paul says to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. No fear. You know the most repeated command in the Bible? Fear not. Almost always, always followed up by, because I'm with you. Fear not, because I'm with you. Don't be afraid, right? This is something that may be a personal thing. I get kind of tired of. It's Christians who rightly see the change in our country and the cultural decay, but then there's all this hand-wringing and like, oh, what are we going to do about it? Like, what, what do you mean? Well, Matt, I'm fighting for the soul of America. No, America has no soul. People have souls. Fight for them. Like, no. No, don't worry about it. I've read the end of the book. It's supposed to get bad. Do you know that? Read Revelation. I've read the book. It's supposed to get bad. And what happens when it gets dark is you and I have this incredible opportunity to shine brighter than we've ever shown before in our lives. Are you kidding? What are we hand-wringing about? I've read that in the book. It's like Jesus goes in Luke chapter 24, and he meets these two disciples that are all freaked out. He starts walking with them, and he hears their story, and he says this, oh, you foolish and slow of heart. Do you not believe all that the prophets have written? Don't you believe what the Bible says? Don't you know at the very end we win? Are you kidding? What are we frightened of? To live as Christ, to die as gain. No, no, don't be afraid. And Paul's saying this when Caesar Nero was on the throne. I don't care how much you dislike our governor or our president or whoever it is. I'm telling you, Nero is worse. Read history. And it's that environment that Paul says, yeah, I'm not afraid. No fear. Why? Because to live is Christ. To die is gain. And then lastly, no problem. Verse 29 says this. It has been granted, <laughs> gifted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Does anyone have that underlined in their Bible? I thought about underlining it in mine before I said that. Like, yeah, I do. <laughs> but just reveal the wickedness of my own heart. I don't have it. It's been given to you to suffer for his sake. We have to be a people that have a perspective on suffering that's right. And I think the best I ever saw was this. It was when I was in Fiji... We had a day in Fiji, and a giant storm had come through and just washed everything out, and there was mud everywhere and water everywhere, and we got in this taxi, and we're just trying to see as much of Fiji as we can in a day. So we tell our taxi driver, let's go here, and we'd come up to these places where there's all this mud and dirt, and we'd be like, 
can you make it across that? And he would say, Sangra Nalangra, and then just floor it and go through. And he kept doing that. Every time I'm like, bro, what does Sangra Nalangra mean? He goes, no problem. I said, that's it. No matter what we face, mud, dirt, storm, whatever, no problem. No problem. Christ is on our side. No problem. My heavenly father's got this. Judo theology works. To live as Christ, to die as gain, no problem. That's gospel living. That's the witness that people want when they're freaking out and you've got a peace that passes understanding with mud and storm in front of you. Sangra no longra, no problem. Jesus, help us. We hear the richness of how the gospel transformed Philippi. And we want that same richness in our life. So I pray for each one of us here today, Lord. Whether it's in our friendships, whether it's in proclaiming the gospel, whether it's in the perspective of the gospel, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, whether it's in gospel living, without fear, knowing that you are on the throne, knowing that to live is Christ, great, wonderful, but even to die is better because we go where we belong. I pray where each of us needs your help, I pray that your spirit even now in this moment would be taking the promise of Scripture the word would become flesh and transform us. And we change our minds and you change our hearts. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.